This is a message I, I want to add that is designed to be uh, re-listened to. Um, I, I want us to consider the possibility of revisiting it and reconsidering it. In, in other words, it's not, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it won't be actually just a one, a one thought shot. It's not really an express train. It's more of a, a journey that's filled with stops. And um, some of those stops along the way uh, invite us to get off and to stop and linger and reflect. They invite us to ponder things. And so, um, again, I, I'm hoping that some of us would consider revisiting this. It's going to be, you know, shown on demand starting at 1 o'clock Pacific time. The 9 and 11 are, are live. There's live chats in, this, in, the, in that regard. Right, the online services are different than the replay. The replay, you can actually stop it and, and go back and, and move and, and discover things that maybe uh, you know you missed the first time through. But again, that's the purpose. And I want us to really take advantage of that. Like, let's take this unconventional <laughs> you know, way of communicating and turn it into an opportunity. Why not? That's what we're all trying to do. Um, this is a message, again, that has to do with exhale. And I wanted to use the great exchange of John 4 between Jesus and the woman at the well as um, our focal point. And I want to say a few things about Jesus and the way that he engaged people before I jump back in. Some, and in fact, this is on your digital handout. So some of you may or may not be aware, but you have, the, you have essentially a digital handout there's actually an ability to do notes as well, but that handout is designed to uh, allow you to not only look at the scriptures, but I have a quote. Uh, well, actually, it's not a quote. It's something I wrote. And I wrote it as a reflection on the uniqueness of the method of Jesus with people. And so I want you to look at that with me. I'm just going to read it through. And again, it's a, it's a fairly large piece here, but it, I just want you to listen to some of the things because it captures a little bit, and I wanted to read it because I want it to be exactly as it came out of, out of my heart so that it helped illuminate this moment. But I said this, I wrote this, it says, a large portion of the criticism that was leveled against Jesus had to do with the fact that he mingled with the unacceptable of his culture, those who were on the social margin, the despised and the ostracized, the spiritually blind and the publicly maligned, the non-religiously inclined, of his day, the ones we might call the outsiders, sinners and tax collectors, rich men, poor men, beggar men, thieves, adulterers, and prostitutes. What's remarkable is he was able to communicate love and acceptance, think about this, without condoning destructive and immoral practice. 
I'll say that again. He was able to communicate love and acceptance without condoning destructive and immoral practice. In fact, change for the better always seemed to follow genuine interaction with Jesus. There was something about his way that made people feel simultaneously at ease and yet disturbed about their condition. Think about that. Both at ease and disturbed. It's something remarkable. He did not patronize people or subtly communicate disgust because he was unafraid and so completely confident in the purity of his character and the singleness of his mission. He could move in love with ease across borders and boundaries. He did so in such a manner that critics, casual observers, and even his own disciples were at times stunned, amazed, and in some cases aghast at the boldness of his method. And it's one of the reasons I love him so much. I love the way of Jesus. And I love the way that he could do this. It's just a, a, a stunning, remarkable, beautiful example of how to engage people, how to confront things, but in the most delicate of manners, I just uh, find it remarkably beautiful. That's all I can say about it. Anyway, let's, let's, uh, let's take a look because there's probably no greater example of this method of what I just referred to than what we were reading about here in John four. I mean, this is this interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. It, it, it is everything. It just is a, like a capsule. It encapsulates the very most, uh, the very best of, of the way of Jesus in which, and it models for us how to engage others. And so let's look at this together. It says in verse three, he left Judea and departed again for the Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. And I want to throw, throw that map up again for us to be aware of. I mean, the older version again, says it so poetically and I love it. He must needs go through Samaria. The Lord had to do it. And, and again, he had to, he, he had to go through Samaria because the father had put it into his heart to do so. I mean, he didn't literally have to pass through Samaria. And on the map, you can see where the Galilee is in the north and, the, and Judea is in the south. That's where Jerusalem is and where we derive the word Jew from, Judea. Uh, but Samaria is in the middle. And it plays a big part in the Bible story historically, certainly at the time of Jesus. And we know that a lot of times what would happen is most of most Jewish people and certainly the rabbis of Jesus's day would tend to completely avoid the region of Samaria. Again, that sandwich space in between Judea and Galilee, what they would do instead was cross over on the east side of the Jordan River. The Jordan served as the eastern border of Samaria, and they would have gone up or down depending on which way they were going. And then they would have cut back in. So they would cut around again. I've talked about it. It was like a bypass. And the reason for it was because there was this kind of tension that everyone really wanted to avoid, especially, um, well, it was long seated and, uh, seated. And it was an abiding loathing of all things Samaritan by the Jews, the Samaritans. Some of us may be aware, but they were a mixed blood people, which had resulted from uh, intermarriage with Gentiles during the Assyrian conquest of the Northern kingdom. And the Jews of the Southern kingdom had also been conquered by the Babylonians, but they had stubbornly refused to intermarry. And so they viewed the Samaritans 
as kind of traders. And that sort of like, you know, what the, the Southern kingdom had done held out even under in captivity, they had retained their identity, their culture, their devotion to God. They felt like the, the Samaritans, the Northern kingdom had, uh, allowed themselves to just be assimilated and there was this tension. And, and on top of that, the, the Samaritans had what we would call a, a kind of truncated form of Judaism, a trick, a truncated form that was actually highly offensive to a true follower of the law and the prophets blending Jewish and pagan elements. And lastly, it should be mentioned that there was a kind of tension and prejudice and that that tension and prejudice, social discomfort, it actually did what is the case sometimes most, well, it's the same way today. It went in both directions, right? Um, it went both ways. Samaritans didn't get along with Jews. Jews didn't get along much with Samaritans. They each kind of segregated themselves from one another and, uh, it wasn't enforced or anything. It wasn't, you know, required. It was just kind of the way people assimilated with their own kind of people. And, um, you know, I, honestly, I don't know if things have changed that much. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love the church. That's one of the reasons why I love our church is because there's all kinds of different cultures and people from socioeconomic places and ethnicities, and we're all just coming together in Christ. I just love that. I do. And there's great love and accommodation for one another's distinctives because we share the most common thing and that is Christ. But the fact is that, um, Jesus, when he had insisted to his disciples that they, they returned to Galilee through the more direct route of, of Samaria. In other words, he, when he told them, Hey guys, we're, we're just going to go straight through Samaria. Remember they were in the South in Judea in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, we're just going to cut straight. And I imagine that it may have actually raised some of the disciples eyebrows a bit, some glances, <laughs> but they had learned not to question, not to question the master. And so I, I imagine that they looked at one another, they said, well, all right, that's what he wants. And they decided to, you know, let's do it. And okay. There's something for us to consider. I want us to just put it up again. Remember I talked about how this is not a straight shot. We're going to have some stops along the way. Here's one of those stops. Something I want us, I want us to consider right now in this time, as we're dealing with the whole virus and the, the whole ep pandemic epidemic and the way in which it's, it's really requiring us to change our pattern of life. But here's something I want us to think about the Lord's ways will not always make sense to us. And they really do invite us into humility. And again, I'm talking about specifically the way in which Jesus decided to go through Samaria when the disciples probably were thinking we're going to bypass it, which was the common move. And, and can you hear me when I say that this is a time also though, that is inviting us into humility. It really is for so many reasons. I mean, one, I think we may understand, um, in a very new and real way, 
the truth of what Jesus said about where we place our priorities, right? Historically in America, we've been insulated. We tend to not be affected as much by the calamities that other nations face. We have been blessed in remarkable and unusual ways. We are protected on two sides by oceans and, and given tremendous wealth in terms of the land itself. It's just a remarkable country. And yet having said that, this is something that has affected us. We're not exempt from it. And again, it's a reminder of everything. And again, what, what am I saying here? Move with humility. This is a reminder about everything that Jesus taught us about, about treasure and about what's important and about priorities. Remember what he said, you know, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Think about this where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal it away. Where, where things are essentially inca incapable from being taken. And one of the things we're reminded of is that if situations hit us like this, that num number two, we are more vulnerable than we realized. Uh, we are more fragile. Things are more fragile. And that's just the truth. And we're experiencing right, this right now. There's no question to me that that's what we're experiencing. The reality of what Jesus taught us is coming just like in vivid colors in front of our eyes about how fragile things are and about the need to make sure that we are thinking through our priorities and what we build our life on and where our hope genuinely rests, right? And then I think we're also called to be humble in our prayer. Some of us on our own time may want to check out 2 Chronicles 7.14 because it's an amazing verse. It talks about the power of humility in prayer. Back to verse 5. Go follow with me. It says, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So it's historically rooted. Read about that in the book of Genesis. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. We would say is about 12 noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So, and she said to, you know, and Jesus, Jesus said to her actually, Hey, can you give me a drink? Can you get me some water? Can you share with me your water? And we're told in verse eight, because the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So think about this. He's by himself. He's sitting on the well, by the well in noontime. Uh, I imagine him in my mind's eye, just kind of leaning in some way, um, in some reclined position. This woman makes her way. She's got her water pots. It's a lot of work to, to carry a water pot. Maybe she had more than one. We don't know. Maybe she had a utensil to also get water with, you know, like a cup. But as she's making her way towards the well, she's kind of caught off guard by this man who's there, which was not common. She, she realizes he's a, he's a Jew. There were certain things that would have given that away. And then she's caught off guard again by the fact that he initiates a conversation with her. On top of that, he's making a request. And we talked about that in last week's message. And I, but the reason we're told, you know, because here's the thing. Jesus asked the question in part because he was thirsty. He was thirsty. And he, he wanted some water and he didn't have any way to get that water. She did. And we're told that he was tired. He was weary. He rests. He was resting. And again, Jesus in his humanity, that's the picture we're being given wearied. And, and 
I, you know, I can't ever, I can't ever see that image in my mind without reconnecting to what we're told in John one, where we're told that the word God's very thought, the son became flesh, right? The, the, the word of God took on humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's another passage in Philippians two, put this up, says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something he could cling to or something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took a, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, human and divine, right? capable in divinity of meeting the human needs, his human needs, and listen, his desires. And yet he will work no miracle to his benefit. Think about that. Human and divine, fully capable in his divinity. That's how he did miracles. Fully capable in his divinity of meeting his own human needs. But he will work no miracle for his own benefit. Think, I mean, I found myself going, wow, this is intense. The one who could turn water into wine will ask another for water. The one who could feed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves would not make it happen for himself, but would instead send his disciples into town to purchase food. There will be no miracle self provision. And this is really good for us to consider and reflect upon. I think, especially in this time, especially when we feel like sometimes God isn't coming through for us. It's true. We are invited to ask and we should ask because Jesus reminded us, don't be afraid to ask, ask God to help intervene to do things. But at the same time, we need to do it with humility, submitting, our requests always to his larger purposes, which is partly what I believe we are doing when we end our prayers in Jesus name. Every time I end my prayer in the name of Jesus, I'm essentially saying your will be done. Lord, I'm submitting it under that name. That's why I like to end my prayers that way in Jesus name. I often start off with father or I'll start off with Lord. And then I say in Jesus name, as we were taught. And that's, that's a way of saying, I call in the, the authority of that name, but I also submit into that name. I submit this prayer under the umbrella of the name of Christ of the will of God. You see, you see that. And I, again, I just want us to see this and I, well, you can look at this with me, but I think it could be helpful in such a time as, as this, the one that we're in right now, where we may wonder, where is God in this, uh, this, uh, scary place and why is it happening? And, you know, I've thought about that as, and, 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 and by the way, those are two very different questions. Uh, God's ways are not our ways. Number one, we see things through a temporal lens. God sees things from an eternal one, which means there is no time as we know it in the mind of God, it is timeless. Eternity has no beginning and no ending. And I can't even really, really, I can't quite, you and I as time constrained beings, finite beings 
have a hard time grappling intellectually with timelessness. We know beginning and endings. Uh, we don't understand no beginning and no ending. It's, it's something we can describe but not understand, I don't think, not really. Um, but I, I, as again, God's ways are not our ways. As for the latter, uh, you know, why is this happening? I think there are many reasons. I suppose the first of, the first reason that I always fall back into is that we live, as the scripture teaches us, in a sin-impacted, broken world so where bad things happen. And this is an example of that. The place that we're in right now is a, a direct reminder that, you know, we live in a, in a, in a sin-impacted, broken world. That's just the way it is. Jesus said, it will be this way till he returns. And when he does return, he said he would alter the, the universe and the human experience. But between now and then, there will be times like this. And we're just facing what generations have faced, you know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. But as for the other question, where is God in all of this? Where is God at? For those of us who know Christ, we know one thing. You know it. I know it. We need to remind ourselves of it. I know where God is at. I know where Jesus is. He's right by our side. That's just the fact. You, Lord, are by my side in this moment. Maybe some of us just need to say that. You are by my side. You are by my side. I have found that actually... He is even closer in times of fear and suffering, times of questions and pain, just as in a unique way, he was closer to us when he hung on the cross, alone in the darkness, utterly forsaken. I don't know if we were ever closer to his love than in that moment. That was the epicenter of the expression of God's love as he hung there for us. And he paved the way for intimacy. The veil of the temple was torn uh, from top to bottom that God would know, God's presence would no longer dwell in a, in a house made with human hands, but in the believing heart of a man, of a woman, of us, that that relationship is possible in a way that was impossible before God gave us his own son as a propitiation, a covering for our sin. There's so much beauty there. Perhaps, perhaps it would be helpful when we start to wonder where God is in all of this to see him with us sitting at the well, sharing in our thirst. I tried to get my mind to think about it in all of this. Like, I just, I just tried to think of Jesus sitting at the well with us in this moment, sitting and waiting, waiting, asking questions and offering water, inviting us to explore our lives, even as we're going to see the shameful parts, to find our deepest purpose and truest selves in our interactions with him. And is this not one of those times where we can sit with Jesus by the well and have this conversation with him? about our lives. Again, everything that's happening here with the woman at the well is an invitation that Jesus is making to us right now at this time and in this place. 
He's inviting us into this conversation. He's inviting us to know our true selves. Let's use this time as a time to grow deeper in our soul. But back to the Samaritan uh, woman, this woman at the well. Um, She seems to have been an outcast to her own people. She probably was a bit of a pariah. Normally the women would have come daily to the well. Actually, the time that they would have come would have been in the cool of the evening. It was obvious why you would want to do that without the sun. You would carry heavy things. (laughs) You didn't want to have the sun beating down on you when you did it. It's better to do it at dusk. Um, Well, water, some of us may not realize this, but still today it's true in some uh, developing countries. But well water, which is why I'm such a, a supporter of the whole, you know, well movement, you know, giving, giving people the opportunity for clean water is so huge because in those days, well water was essential for ancient life. I mean, it was critical. Typically it would be, and that's been the case for all of history, but typically it was drawn, that water was drawn with a, a clay pot or an animal skin. So kind of imagine that being dropped in Uh, It could be a pot that was dropped in, a jar, sometimes it's called, or it could have been like an animal skin that could get filled up. But either way, it had to be dropped into the water. And usually it was tied to a rope. Wells were places also of, because of that, they were places of socialization. And, and, you know, oftentimes in majority of the cases, it was the women who would come and hang out in that, in that culture. And in that time, that would have been the case. They would have hung out and talked sometimes. Sometimes, once in a while, the men would come, but most of the time it was, it was the women who would come. And, but, but here we see that she is, has come at the sixth hour, which is at noontime, and it's in the heat of the day, and we know something else. She came by herself. So maybe she preferred to come when the, I'm going to use this in italics, the good women were absent because she had a reputation and we're going to see this later in the passage and we're going to, you know, in the coming weeks, wherever we're meeting, most likely here, but wherever it is, we're going to adapt. But we're going to see that, that, that probably she didn't go with the other women because she had a reputation as a loose and, and, and immoral woman that would have made it uncomfortable for everyone. And so maybe, maybe she just wanted to avoid that whole thing as sometimes we're prone to do, right? Who wants to go into a place where you just feel like you're going to be judged by everybody? Um, or maybe she, she had something come up that threw her off her normal routine. What we do know is that there was a divine appointment that had been set up and she was, if I could say it this way, she was right on schedule for that divine appointment. And again, from a Jewish perspective, she would have qualified. I, I need to put it this way. She would have qualified as an outcast of outcasts for a Jewish teacher, holy man. Um, the idea that a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi would have interaction, personal interaction with, with such a person was unconscionable, bordering, if I can put it this way, on scandalous, right? And, and she also was aware of that divide, no question about it. And in fact, she was caught off guard by Jesus's initiative. Look at it with me in a couple of verses that we have left. Look at verse nine. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Whoa, whoa, whoa. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
We don't do this. And Jesus answered, and I love the answer. I, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you or asking you for a drink, if you really understood who is asking you for a drink of water, you would have asked him, me, and he would have given you, me, I would give you living water. Like, if you really understand, understood the opportunity, <laughs> it wouldn't be me asking you for water. You'd be asking me for water, but a different kind of water. Uh, you would be asking me for a drink of that water because it's the living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you, you, don't, you have no, look at that. You have nothing to draw water with. Uh, that well is, this well is deep. Where do you get this? living water. Now, living water probably had a dual meaning. For her, it would have meant fresh water, pure water. Um, Jesus had obviously a different meaning. Like he really meant something even much more profound. But again, I just love the way he wraps that into her heart and begins to engage her imagination. And she says, well, how could you get, you can't even have anything to draw water from. How can you give me any living water? Now they're in a conversation. Would you give me a drink? Um, he had nothing to get the water with. Think about this. When Jesus asked the question, would you get me a drink? He had nothing to get the water with. And he had no cup as far as we can tell either. And could it be that the request he made was for also a drink of water from her cup. Now, I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but it was not inconceivable that she would have had some type of a drinking utensil in addition to the, the water pot itself. And Jesus, Jesus asked her for a drink. Would you give me a drink? And if you really think about it, he was asking to share the cup of an unclean Samaritan woman. It, at the very least, it was asking to share water from her bucket. And I was struck by a couple of things, and it almost made me cry when I first thought about it. By the idea that the Lord, the Lord of glory, would humble himself to drink from a cup from someone like me. A cup such as mine, for it too is an unclean cup. And I remember when I was writing this down, I thought, oh Lord, you're willing to drink from my cup. Like all of us have unclean cups. It, it is truth in he, that he would be willing to drink from our unclean cups is astonishing to me that he would be willing to cross such a divide to reach you and me is amazing. What, what, wonderful love that God could love. And I quote a, a hymn of, of days gone by that God could love a sinner such as me, a sinner such as I. How wonderful is love like that, right? That he is willing to share my dirty cup overwhelms me that he, this is what I mean, that he loves us despite our flaws, our willfulness and our, our shame things that we're ashamed of. Should I not, in response to that love, be prodigal 
and giving him back my love, that is, give him the best that I have? And should I not also forgive as I have been forgiven? Is there anyone that is unclean, that we cannot extend something of Christ towards? If he who was beautiful and perfect was willing to engage us in our imperfections and sin and willfulness, if he forgives me, how can I hold back for forgiveness for others? I don't know. His example reminds us to be aware of putting people also into boxes and to instead see them with grace-filled eyes, which is the title of this message. I remember reading something from Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, and he wrote this. He said, in his own social interaction, Jesus was putting into practice what he called the great reversal heralded in the Beatitudes. Normally in this world, we look up to the rich, the beautiful, the successful. Grace, however, introduces a world of new logic. Because God loves the poor, the suffering, the persecuted, so should we. Because God sees no undeniable, neither should we. By his own example, Jesus challenged us to look at the world through what the ancient church father, Irenaeus, called grace-filled eyes. Grace-filled eyes. And perhaps this is one of the gifts of this unwelcome time of ours. That it allows us an opportunity, a choice, to see with either eyes of fear or eyes of grace. We have space to welcome his grace, to sow seeds of grace, to, to water them and to watch them grow. Instead of seeing only a calamity and dropping into negativity, let us see this as a time to model optimism and gratitude for blessings in the past we may have taken for granted. Instead of feeling paralyzed by the situation that none of us wanted, let us instead, and, 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 and by things that may not even happen, because some of us are already imagining things not going well, and, and part of us needs to think about the future, but you know, maybe we're being paralyzed by stuff that's not even happened and may never happen, but it's happening in our minds. And instead of holding on to those things, Lord, may the Lord help us to be, uh, to look at things through the grace-filled eyes and to be creative blessers, to become spiritual artists, yes, Life givers and smile makers. Yeah, that's what I want to be. And instead of getting irritable, let's get irresistible. <laughs> I know. How did you come up? Instead of getting irritable, let's be irresistible. Remember this one. So good. So God. So good. So God. That's what he does. I want him to do that in all of our lives. Let me pray. Lord, I just, I just want to ask for you to bless Bless all those who are sharing in this time together. And of course, we continue to pray for our nation. We continue to pray for our leaders. We continue to pray for the world that is in pain. And we continue to pray for healing at all levels, physically, um, in, in the bodies of people. Yes, in the minds, in the minds, in our minds, and also in, in our economy as well. We want people to have a sense of value. And, and we don't want things to, to fall apart in ways that would then hurt people in a different way. So we're just welcoming you in, Lord. But in the meantime, we're going to grow. We're going to stay hopeful. We're going to trust you, and we're going to be courageous. But most of all, as we've settled into this day, remind us to keep looking at things 
with grace-filled eyes. We thank you for the time we've shared. May gratitude be our song, and may his blessing be yours this good day. Yes, it is. In Jesus' name. Bye, guys. Bye.